0: So welcome to the fifth installment of the Precepts program, our year-long immersion into Buddhist ethics and meeting our life as it is um, with a focus. So like we like to say, this, is, this study is, is your life, but with a focus to it. <clears throat> so now that we've sat and we've done our free writing, um, how about some reports from the field? bodhisattvas out there in the world. How's it going? Um, What have you been noticing as you go through your month-to-month working with each of these precepts? Any observations? Joan, yes, please.
1: Am I muted? We can hear you. Oh, now you're muted. Well, I've had a long-term situation with my daughter, who's a grown professor, professional woman, really accomplished lady. I'm very proud of her. But there's some hangover things. And recently, she called me on something that bothers her that I think is a really rational, rational thing that I do anyway. I didn't mention it to her. And that was the smartest thing I've done for a long time, is to just let it go by, see if I can process it and just breathe with it. And I found that to be very useful, because I was, I was assuming something her about her left over without really being in the present moment. So it was uh, Yeah.
0: So you, you decided to uh, stand back and, and not participate in your normal reactivity and see if something shifted or something happened differently, huh? Yeah. And it sounds like
1: it was different for you. And one thing I observed after that, she uh, put her, the picture she has on her Facebook page is a watercolor painting I did of her a long time ago, which she didn't really like. It makes her nose too long, but she's posted that without having anyone ask her to do that. I thought, well, that seems like a change of something. Just an observation. (laughs) It's a good observation. Thanks for sharing.
0: Hi Lisa, so welcome. We're just doing reports from the field from our last month of observing the precepts and anything anyone would like to share. So, Rosemary, you had your hand up.
2: Yeah, um, so I was um, pretty resistant to um, doing the exercise for the um, uh, taking the path of cultivating a clear mind. And um, I, my activity that I did, I did decide to do the exercise, um, yesterday, so right before our class, but, um, and, um, the, the activity was TV and, um, it was pretty revealing. And I think I got to understand why I put it off. I think I was anticipating a few things that it would um, be uncomfortable, um, exploring it and, um, that I might want to make some changes. And both of those things I think, um, kept me avoiding it. So in, um, the five minutes before turning the TV on, um, I was completely focused on the cable box and, um, you know, I kind of wanted a lot from this box. You know, I was like, this box is going to give me something really, really good. And um it just stayed that way. And, you know, Diane was saying that, you know, the one minute can be a really, really long time. Well, the five minutes just flew. I was just, and then um, um well, the emotion that came with looking at the box with a lot of sadness, a lot of sadness and, um, and then turning the TV on, um, it wasn't a very good show. And I had kind of a knot in my stomach, um, turning it off. Um, I began to think about what the sadness was about, um, and realized that TV watching was something from a very, very young age that soothed me from what was going on in my home and, um, that I've probably been using it, you know, ever since to, um, just like somebody that takes a glass of wine or, you know, something else to alter, alter what might be going on. So, um, yeah so there was a lot of sadness and and also tension i kept taking deep breaths afterwards and um sort of looking around my apartment when it was off that it just opened up a lot if if with with this exploration anyway as i just was a i mean it was a huge deal for me to take a look at it so i it was really i was determined yesterday to Devote some um, dedicated time to doing the exercise, and I feel um, really good that I, um, you know, got past my uh, resistance. And we'll see where it goes from here. Um, but I got I got some insight. So thank you, thanks.
0: Wow, that was a that was a lot. Thank you so much for opening up. Um, isn't it? It is amazing. You know how how many layers there are to these things that we do right if we if we approach them in that way kind of in the mind of inquiry or investigating you know the same thing we do every day because there's there's so much to be learned you know so congratulations for deciding to do it and and just seeing what you learned you know what we do with that who knows you know that's that's another step but that was a big one thanks for sharing thank you Leslie, I think you were going to say something.
3: Yeah, my my uh, internet's been acting up, so I, I may come in and out, but I'll try to try to um, do it quick. Uh, so I missed the last two times. I apologize. Um, however, I spent the last two weekends in retreat on, on with Flint, so I was able to do his awakening together. He's in community retreat um, and the uh, open door uh, community retreat. Um, the first one was on the precepts, which is great because I got a whole weekend of kind of <laughs> fire hose precepts. Um, the second weekend was on, uh, which I hadn't been practicing at all. So it was a little bit, um, anyway, it was a little over my head. But having said that, one that I have, have been having the most difficulty with is uh well it was number 6 uh, uh not no gossiping i think it boils down to no gossiping and i guess i didn't really realize how much i did that um and and you know when flint said he said the words he said don't when you're with one person don't talk about anyone else and i realized oh if i don't do that then anyway just that was just something that that was a kind of an awakening for me um I didn't realize how much I did it and the, uh, the, uh, the four practice principles, I don't know if you've covered that yet in this class, um, but just the, you know, the cot and the self-centered dream starts off like that, but in any case, that's what's helped me the most is really trying to get out of that because that's, um, anyway, I'm, I'm a work in progress.
0: Aren't we all?
3: kind of what my quick update i rose, so i don't know how much of that you got
0: oh i heard i think i heard almost all of it we missed a word or two but got most of it okay yeah thanks for sharing yeah if only we could just not be caught in the self-centered dream i think we could pretty much stop there
3: yeah that's that's exactly right so (laughs) that's that's my work right now
0: that's right thank you Any other reports or reflections? What you're noticing out there? Or inside?
4: But I think those classes have helped me to be a little more aware, even if I don't catch myself before I speak or act. But it seems the awareness happened much faster than in the past. It can be as soon as I said something or when I had a conversation with other colleague, I'm like, why did you take part of that conversation just to feel accepted by the other people, which I would have never thought of before? And then something silly happened to me. Well, silly when I'm telling the story, but at the moment, I thought it was so serious. It's like a neighborhood issue between dogs, you know, and one of the dog was loose and I have an older dog. And I started raging at the other owner and the moment I was raging, I didn't notice anything. But as soon as I took a step away from the situation and going back home, I'm like, Fabian, what happened to you? Why did you wage so much? And I guess that was a way of defending myself when I was a teenager and being put in awkward situation. You know, it was kind of self-defense, my self-defense mode. And, uh, but as soon as I got home, I don't know, um, it brought like, I was really aware of what happened and that it was inappropriate, even if the other people were supposed to have their dog on a leash and be able to control their dog. I think my wage was inappropriate. So I decided that evening that I was going to write them an apology note, you know, because I I have no right to talk to them the way I talk to them. And it kind of brought me a lot of relief because when I dropped the note in their mailbox, they came out and we we end up having a nice conversation. And so I think I would have never been able to do that without your classes because I would have said, oh, okay, you've been angry, you've been raging like you've done so many times in the past and you know, it's okay. <laughs> You you your right. I would have found a way to justify my anger. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's Definitely. so amazing when we have those little moments of insight into what we're actually up to, right? How we're actually conducting ourselves. And I think, um, you know, your comment about not, not noticing it until just after it happens uh, is still, you know, a really big win, right? Often, like you said, often we will never notice our own actions, or our own consequences of our actions. But it's just like like sitting, um, just like sitting with your posture or paying attention to your breathing, right? That when we first start, um, we're really slow at noticing that we haven't been paying attention, maybe 10 minutes go by, right? And over the years, we get a little bit quicker, like you know, every minute or two, we might realize, oh, I've been gone, I'm coming back, right? So it's the same thing as we take that into the world where we get closer and closer to course correcting in real time, even maybe before our mouth opens. So it's on, you're on the right path. That's right. Where we're exercising that awareness muscle. It really isn't a muscle somewhere in there in our psyche that gets exercised and
5: developed. So I too did the experiment, um, where I observed my reaction to something that I anticipated. And, um, in my case, it was my morning coffee. So I, I procrastinated on this till this week. And, um, what I found was I was suffering from a lot of sadness. First thing in the morning, my mind was very calm, but the underlying emotion was definitely some grief because I, I lost a relative last week, and um, and yet I was I was somewhat centered in the grief. And as I was preparing the coffee and um, waiting, I was struck by. Um, the experience of glee and euphoria that I associated with this first cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could imagine the taste and the warmth. And I hope this isn't, this self-revealing account isn't in terrible taste, but it actually reminded me of being, you know, a 20-year-old who was about to use cocaine. Mm -hmm. And um, experiencing a little bit of euphoria prior to consuming uh, the stimulant. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was sort of alarmed by the parallel, obviously, um, but the anticipation was, um, it was very dramatic. And as soon as I drank the coffee, my thoughts became very discursive. And I felt sort of blocked off from the emotional content I had been experiencing before um, to the extent that I I recognized why I was drinking multiple cups of coffee every morning. Um, But it it did leave me, um, it it was sort of an unpleasant experience afterwards um, physically it was a little bit sickening. Mm
6: -hmm.
5: I mean, there was like a knot in my stomach. So
0: Mm
5: -hmm. that was pretty dramatic.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. It really is amazing. I mean, we're talking about a cup of coffee in the morning, right? It really is amazing. The, uh, the layers to each moment of experience that are there, that are probably there on, you know, you could probably pick just about any experience, you know, walking out to your car, you know, if we if we broke it down the same way. Um, it's really great to, to hear the reflections from you guys about what you're noticing,
6: right,
0: and what's available. So I think the sharing is, is great. It really helps me. Thank you. Any other reports? Mitch. I,
7: I thought about, I guess I was thinking about the mind-altering drugs. Uh, I went to visit my brother who I haven't seen, haven't been alone with probably my entire life. Uh, he's, he's about 13, 13 and a half years younger than I am. Uh, growing up, you know, um, he was old enough to know what was going on. I was out of the house. So I went to visit him. He lives in New Orleans. To visit him in New Orleans, and uh, it was just me. And so it was the first time we spent any time together alone. And one uh, well, of you know, New Orleans is known for its alcohol and uh, other things. So. When we get there, you know, first thing you know, hey, you want to drink? (laughs) Uh, So I started thinking. Well, so I started thinking about it. Do I want to drink, or is it a social? be a social thing, or am I zoning out? You know, and uh, because I'm, I don't know if I was afraid to be with my brother, or what was, you know, what was really going to happen? We're going to get to know each other. That's one way to get to know each other. But do I want to do? But I was very aware of of the alcohol, uh, so I thought about it. And then I think the, the first night I went ahead and had a drink with him, uh, next next night I just said, no, I'm okay. And, you know, I, want, I just wanted to be aware of what was going on, I guess, between him and me without any kind of high uh, or any other, any other sort of sensation. So, but just being aware of it, uh, it brought me, I think it brought me into being aware of everything else also, how, how I, it just brought other things out and how I was looking at him, uh, and actually listening to what he was saying, uh, and try and not, and trying not to judge and not to talk about anybody else, uh, so it's like all, all the things were coming out. Uh, so I just kind of experienced you know, all the rush of, of all that uh, while we were together. Yes, uh, it worked out that it was very, it was, it, was, it was very, very interesting so just to, to have it all. I wasn't, I wasn't really intending, I didn't think to, to dwell on everything, but it, it just it just came out. So, and then I realized, hey, this is this is what's coming out about the research. Very uh, mind mind opening, Uh, Mm.
0: mind opening. Excellent. Thank you. Last call. Any any other observations? Okay, well, let's get into uh, the Rosetto book, and we'll do our little review of Cultivating a Clear Mind, and then for the second half of tonight, we're going to get into uh, Dale Wright's The Six Perfections, and we're going to talk about chapter two on morality. Oh, and then I think um, Robin Bradford was going to join us tonight, and she was going to um, facilitate one of the topics, but she ended up with a conflict, but I think she'll be here next month, so you guys won't just have to listen to me next month, so you have glad to look forward to. <clears throat> so, chapter eight, I take up the way of cultivating a clear mind. Right? And the precepts sometimes worded as not giving or taking drugs, not indulging in intoxicants, or not clouding the truth. right And what Diane, the point she starts off by making is that this, this precept, you know some of them can seem like uh, prohibitions, which is the perfect word for not taking intoxicants.) <clears throat> But in reality, she's emphasizing the point that this is about showing up. It's about showing up. She starts the chapter saying that 90% of getting along well in life is showing up for it. And to add to that, showing up fully in each moment. Being present is not just being present in body alone, but in body and clear mind. So that's where we begin. That's the emphasis is showing up. We have to show up for our lives. And when we're intoxicated, um, we aren't fully there. Our normal self is not fully there. We've escaped our ordinary-minded way you know, into some altered state, however minor it may be. The state we might prefer I have a state that uh, gives us maybe some relief or change from our normal habitual patterns. But in that state, you know, we aren't fully there as our normal selves. <clears throat> and so we can't meet others fully. It's just a fact. You know, They're gonna meet intoxicated Todd. They're not gonna meet Todd. It might be a lot of fun, I don't know, it depends on the the night, but. So this is about showing up. But if we're going to have any hope of being free from our habitual reactivity, um, the first step is to see it clearly, right? To be free from it, we have to see it clearly. So that means that we have to uh, show up in a sober way in order to have that clear vision to see what we're really up to, right? And, and several of you described the depth of the experience and awareness in that pause before you know grabbing the remote for the TV or before the cup of coffee or before the drink, right? <clears throat> right, and... Um, It sure seemed to me like you guys were describing some awareness and clarity that was um, unusually heightened. Right? So it provides a little glimpse of of what it can be like to show up fully in each moment, right? That was a, it was a little contrived uh, experiment maybe, but that's where we start. And it gives us the little insights and windows into how we can show up fully. And intoxicants, you know, they can prevent our ability to see it clearly in the moment. And right? so we might miss something. So that's what the precept's all about. Being awake and being present for our one teacher, our main teacher, life as it is. each moment life as it is the only teacher that's a chant we say here and if life is the teacher when's the when's life going to show up the only time it could ever show up which is right now in those moments that we're not clear we're going to miss it in the moments where we aren't ready to see clearly we miss our teachers So this directs us towards, you know, cultivating some clarity. And one of the best ways that we can learn how to cultivate this clarity, uh, clarity is to shine a light on the ways that we avoid it, right? The, the negative aspects. An excellent way is to look at all the ways that we cloud our clarity. There's a line in here that she attributes to a a writer. Um, It says to look life in the eye and love it back. So if we're to look life in the eye and love it back, then we need to look at what's clouding our view. So here's a passage that she uses, an analogy, a farming analogy. One way to think of the mind's innate clarity is by comparing it to rich, unworked soil, full of possibilities and nutrients, teeming with millions of insects, microorganisms, bacteria, and enzymes, standing ready in full potential to interact and bring forth whatever seeds are planted there. Much like a gardener carefully cares for the soil by not adding pollutants and toxic substances so that its full potential can nurture and grow the seeds planted, we can cultivate a mind that is rich, open, and ready to cultivate the seeds planted by life events, our teachers. So this precept's not about changing our mind but it's about inquiring into the ways we get lost in obscuring or clouding it. It's about making use of the clarity that's already ours for the taking. The clarity that allows us to cultivate whatever seeds life brings our way. And that's what I feel you guys were describing in your reflections, in in that pause, in those moments of heightened awareness and clarity. Right, you discover a depth of your relationship to the moment, of your habitual patterns that maybe Rosemary was talking about things that she thought maybe were linked to her past, right? Things that old places, things that come back. Right. And these insights, they're they're available to us when we're clear and we're awake and present. So with that kind of as our working definition, then really, you know, our definition of intoxicants um, gets largely expanded, right? If we're talking about ways that cloud our mind and cloud our judgment or take us out of the present moment, right? There's a lot more to it than just drugs and alcohol. The perfect example is is, uh, distractions like television, like it was being mentioned. Um, food, right? Food is a great, a great distraction, right? Um, I mean, there's a million examples in, in the book that she talks about. But really, um, it's anything we use to avoid present life. Anything that we use to to turn away from immediate experience. Whether that's alcohol, cigarettes, TV, surfing the net, going down the the rabbit hole on the web, right, of whatever particular topic you like. Um, Even daydreaming, you know, daydreaming, it's kind of like our internal little television. Um, Let's tell ourselves a story. That's much more entertaining than sitting here waiting for the bus. Maybe I'll just invent my own story. But that can be a way we turn away from immediate experience and that we aren't available. So it's good to have our inquiry be uh, wide in this precept, to look at all the ways that we turn away, the little ones that are not maybe harmful to our bodies or others, but maybe, make it so that we aren't fully available in that moment. And this is not about judging any particular activity, by the way, this is this is just about this uh, investigation into what we're up to each moment, and if we're really there. So how do we know, you know, which of these items we're treating as intoxicants, right? We can, we can turn on the news to make sure that we you know, know what's going on that day, that may or may not be an intoxicant, right? Food, we all have to eat, may or may not be intoxicant, right? <clears throat> so uh, Diane's work and her practice is to, to study our intention, right, to make that pause, How are we using them? There were several good examples in the reflections about taking the pause um, before we engage in a particular activity, exploring the thoughts and feelings in our relationship to it, and seeing the emotional content that comes up. So often, you know, a pause or um, abstinence, at least even when temporary, is a really useful part of this process, of this investigation. So we're we're not being strictly prohibitive here. That's not, we're not trying to give you a set of rules of you're bad if you do this, they're wrong if you do that. What we're trying to do is become aware of what our intention is, of how we're meeting life and how we're working it. Drug, we might be prescribed drugs for a particular you know, medical purpose that has slightly intoxicating side effects. Right? Does that mean we don't take them? You know, that could have even worse implications. So we have to look at everything holistically. Um, I'm trying to remember when it was, oh, I had a shoulder surgery. I mean, that's what it was. It's been a while, I forgot. And so I got prescribed some form of Vicodin as a painkiller for afterwards. And that was a really interesting exploration um, because I really liked the euphoric feeling and the, the mild high that came from it. And I found myself uh, wanting to decide I was in more pain than I was in. And then maybe it was time for another one. Um, but it was really a uh, useful exercise to, to pause and to see what I was doing with it. Was I using it to um, turn away from a meeting experience or avoid? Or was it medically necessary? So this is
6: our practice.
0: It's an inquiry into how we try to control our thoughts or how we try to control our emotions or our bodily experience. And and sometimes, you know, people who have never had any problematic um, usage of drugs or alcohol or other maybe escapisms think they can skip this precept, right? And kind of wait over it. Oh, I I don't have, you know, that one's not fruitful for me. But I would invite you to think again, that we all have um, this tendency, you know, to various degrees, and that we can learn a lot from investigating it. <clears throat> um, I like to tell the story, I know I already told it in here before in another class, but for me, that, that um, always keeps coming back up about when I discovered that I had a preference for daydreaming. Rather than being here, and that I was actively daydreaming um, a lot, and it was it was shocking. It was horrifying, and I didn't like that about myself. And I didn't know I was doing it. That was the biggest shock, as I I didn't realize that I was choosing it. <laughs> but it was very helpful. And once you start noticing that you're doing something, and then All of a sudden, you have a choice that didn't exist before. That's one of my favorite things to say about Zen practice, by the way, is that it creates opportunities for choice that didn't exist before. Because before, it was habitual reaction. Now, when you've got this awareness practice, oh my gosh, and it's gotten fast enough, like I'll be in the same where you can start to catch it in the moment it's happening. Oh my gosh, now you have a choice. I could do something different. Oh, I love that. Creating possibilities to choose new things. <clears throat> and so she goes through her way of, of practicing with it. I think um, you guys already gave lots of great examples about Pausing about engaging with the body and mind, and going deeper into all the thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So we don't need to cover that, but it's it's the same one that she's before of engaging the observer. And one that I would um, I would invite you to explore is to look at your requirements. What requirements do you have of this moment? How would you like them to be? How should they be? That's another one I'm not sure that she mentions, but try and ask yourself, what what do I require? How do I think it should be? So this clouding that we do as humans, I don't think it's ever going to to stop completely. Clouding is part of the human condition. Distraction is probably the biggest industry that we have. I don't know that that's a fact, but it just seems like it to me. Society is very much about distraction. And we have to be aware of our tendencies to imagine a perfected state of mind that's perfectly clear. To To not fall down that slippery slope of that fantasy where we have a requirement that we're perfectly clear all the time. And I quote, as one Zen master reminds us, the pure immaculate mind just this moment is clouded in the nanosecond of every thought. The pure immaculate mind of just this moment is clouded in the nanosecond of every thought. So in one sense, we become intoxicated every time we have a thought, but we need to think as functioning human beings. Right, so it's not that it's bad, It's just, we have to study our intention. And our intention is to know both the clouds and the clear sky and not be attached to either one, but to see what we're up to. Choco used to, uh, I've heard many recordings of her talk about just seeing what we're up to, seeing what's up. She would often refer to practices, seeing what's up, just seeing what's up. But really, this this is an investigation into how we handle the body-mind states that we aren't satisfied with. It's not good enough. I'm bored. I don't feel relaxed enough that second glass of wine might do it, right? Maybe that new episode of that new show is on. i I feel better doing that than I feel right now. And finally, the last warning here on uh, cultivating a clear mind or not intoxicating is about not intoxicating others Um, both you know literally but more broadly the admonition is about not selling the dharma right not selling some perfected state of mind that's preferential to the ordinary state of consciousness right it's just a reminder Don't use this as something that we're selling that's gonna make things better. So that's cultivating a clear mind. What do you guys think? Anything that didn't sit right with you or that you wanna emphasize? Anything that Rosetto said that I skipped that was valuable to you yes, rosemarie
2: um yeah, I just thought the um let's see the um statement that um not to get attached to um the uh, clarity or the cloud cloudiness. That's always a new thing for me. I'm always looking for what's right and what's wrong, completely right and completely wrong. Um, so that's, you know, that kind of. Um, um, it depends, you know, we have to look at like what's up to know. Mm-hmm. So that's that to me, that's a always a nice reminder to not um, uh, be looking for the, uh, extreme all one way or all the other way.
1: Yes. Thank you. Joan. Well, I've been pondering about something. I, uh, we're walking through the dining room today and we stopped to talk to this couple and I have an attitude about them. He's very skilled and he's been a, ahead of his career and traveled all over the world and stuff. And I said to them, we'd like to have dinner with you sometime. And his wife said, oh, he doesn't like to just visit with people. (laughs) And I thought about it later. I was disappointed. And in that moment, after I thought about it later, I thought, what could I have done to be more myself somehow to open a conversation there? Or should I just leave it alone? And right now, I'm just leaving it alone. But I thought I wanted something to, to come out of that.
0: Yeah, you had,
1: you had a desired outcome that got stymied there, right? So you're... That moment, and it just, I just, I was thinking about later on, what could I have done differently? And I thought, well, it's gone. It's not my problem. Right. But I put him in that box, too. He couldn't get out of that box, and he was Mr. Important. Mm, I see.
0: But it's, it's great that you, you know, can now talk about how you would put them in the box, mm-hmm. right, that the box exists. The fact that you know that the box exists
7: mm-hmm.
0: is a great win.
1: Yeah, and his wife, too, because she was die. you know, she was defining him, and I just let it go by.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Not my problem.
6: Thank you
3: welcome. So Todd, I've been thinking a little bit about what you said about daydreaming. And you, you, anyway, I'm just curious if you can just say a few more words because I, I think I probably do that, but I'm'm not, I'm not sure hundred percent what anyway.
0: Um, well, I was just I'm not sure which part of it you wanted to hear about, but um, yeah, I just discovered that for me personally, uh, I used daydreaming as an escapism, right? As avoiding the present moment um, because present moment was boring, not interesting, not engaging. Right? And I want a distraction, much like turning on a television show or something else. right? And so for me, a habitual daydreaming was... a um, an avoidance mechanism right because i i i preferred not to have no mental stimulus right i wanted to have something to think about or something to dream about so that's how i draw that kind of parallel to an intoxicant for me that's just me is that helpful is that what you were curious about <clears throat>
3: Yeah, I guess part of this is when I do my meditation practice. It's like my so hard for me to keep but to stop having thoughts.
0: Yeah. Does anybody else? Does anybody else feel <laughs> that one? Let's see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just just letting you okay. know. Okay. So. Okay.
3: Well, that that makes me feel a little bit better um, because part of me is. I think part of it is like, oh, you know, just imagining scenarios. Well, what if, what, what if, oh, like Joan, what you just said, well, what if I would have said this instead, then, then maybe this would have been different. And I can, I can spend 10 minutes during a 20 minute meditation going down that path. And yeah. I'm me just too. wondering if, okay. So is that what you kind of mean by daydreaming? Like instead of just.
0: Um, Well, well, I wasn't specifically talking about on the cushion or or meditation. I was talking more about just in daily life. But, you know, (laughs) whatever you do in daily life is going to show up on the cushion. So I I spend plenty of time daydreaming, especially when I started. Um, So, yeah, it's it's both. I feel like there was something I was going to say and then I lost it. It's
6: gone. I'm sure it'll come back. Yes, that's very helpful. Thanks, Todd.
0: Yeah. Oh, I remember what I was gonna say. A little anecdote, a little Joko anecdote. That she was holding a you know a group discussion, I think after a talk one day. And uh, one of the students asked her about her meditation practice, you know, and at the time, I don't remember, you know, she was later in life, I don't know how old she was, but let's say 75 or 80. She'd been doing this a very, very long time. You know, i been a teacher for a long time, Dharma transmission for a long time. And they just said, they asked her, I really want to know, you know, what your meditation practice is like. And she said, oh, mostly thinking. okay right Um, I've you know since I've been involved with Appamata and um, you know done some of the senior student things and one of the things that they'll they'll have people do is conduct the Sunday morning orientations so I did that for a, a lot a lot of Sundays for many years off and on And so in that experience and then an experience out in the world, you know, when people find out you have a meditation practice or Zen practice, there's a really common reaction that I get from a lot of people. And it's this, oh, I can never meditate. My mind's always going. (laughs) Right. That's the reaction from people on the street, from people who come in for orientation, right? Oh, I can never be a meditator. You know, my mind's always going. And they say that because we, in our culture, right, equate meditation to stopping thinking. We think that's what meditation mm-hmm. right? So we, they don't even, that's just a given. That's why they phrase it that way, because it's a given that meditation is stopping thinking, right? Um, but that's not true. I mean, we're not here to, to stop thinking. It's a very useful tool. But we're here to um, change our relationship to it and become the boss. Suzuki Ryoshi would say, you know, when the boss is there, when you are you, everything's in its place and functioning in the right order. When the boss is there, everybody's meditating. So it's true that over time, a natural fruit of the practice is going to be slower thoughts,
6: uh,
0: more control, I hate to use the word, but I can't think of the better one, but more control over what we're doing and what we're up to. So it's a natural byproduct, but we're not here to stop thinking, not here to get rid of our ordinary mind. That's one one of the most famous koans, and one of the statements that's on the wall at Appamada is, "Ordinary mind is the way. Just this mind, this very mind." In my experience, you know, um, whatever your habitual reaction patterns are, if, you know, if you want to rage about the dog, it's not going to go away. I am sorry to say it, <laughs> but it diff- changes very much because the boss gets really fast and the boss steps in before the mouth is open. The rage is there. The pattern is there. But the opportunity, opportunity to choose has been created. And often, as you discussed, when you had that opportunity and you chose, you chose to apologize. You chose not to be that way, right? So imagine if you got to make that choice before your mouth opened. (laughs) So this is what we mean by ordinary mind is the way. That ordinary mind is going to be with you, right? But the boss is going to be there too. Anyway, got a little off track there, but seemed appropriate. So... Why don't we move on? It's 8.20, I always had the goal of not taking the toll two hours and getting you guys out here a little early and, and I'm not succeeding on it again. So. so let's talk about the six perfections. Dale writes Buddhism and the cultivation of character. And I'm just gonna hit a few highlights. This is, a, while the Rosetto book is um, a pretty lighter, easy read, I think, For most people, uh, Dale Wright is is definitely um, slower, more cerebral, and and dense to take in. So I know I I have that issue with it. So it's good to just kind of skim it together and hit some of the highlights. So, chapter... Chapter Chapter 2, The Perfection of Morality. So morality, or or sila in the Pali language, sila paramita, is the perfection of morality. And sila, or morality, is, is a fundamental point of practice. Sila is fundamental in Buddhist history in early buddhist monastic communities Um, and the sanghas the original uh, buddhist sanghas were organized around sila order organized around the 10 basic precepts and and then they expanded upon that with the vinaya which was actually the, the monk's rules for how to live together in sangha you know and the vinaya had i don't i don't know there were hundreds of rules there but So there's always been um, an importance placed on ethics in Buddhism. And they're considered the path of training. Right. So ethics, Sila, is considered the path of training. As they're not, as they don't just inhibit immoral behavior, right? That's one aspect of ethics is. They can inhibit or prohibit immoral behavior. But more importantly, this is more importantly, they transform the character of the practitioner. It is a path of training. They transform the character of the practitioner. And morality is perfected, quote, perfected, when an enlightened motivation takes place in other words you aren't just acting out of obligation to moral rules but this is a natural functioning and that's what it, that's what they one definition of perfecting morality and he goes on to uh, explain kind of two categories of morality, primary morality and secondary morality. Um, Primary, I'm looking for where that was, I was going to grab that sentence, I can't find it, but primary morality is more about not doing, um, you know, actual damage to yourself or others in the present moment, right, not killing Primary, you're not killing someone—that's primary morality. Um, a secondary would be uh, actions that more inhibit your training or your path of training. So, um, other uh, precepts that are considered secondary would be, you know, not engaging in um, comforts, right, or lux- luxuries. So those are considered more secondary. They may not do, you know, immediate harm to someone, but they're not, they inhibit your path of training. Another uh, key item that's central to the study of morality in Buddhism is karma. And karma is a, a, a long and kind of deep subject, but we're we're gonna breeze through it here with just some central principles. So actions of, of a particular quality give rise to consequences of a corresponding kind. And this is thought to be kind of a natural law in Buddhism. So actions of a particular quality give rise to consequences of a corresponding quality or corresponding kind. In one analogy, it's it's equated to seeds that ripen into fruit, right? So an apple seed does not grow and ripen into a watermelon, right? If we have, um, you know, let's take a big example, murderous thoughts. Do not grow and ripen into generosity. So all acts generate consequences that shape the character of the actor. So karma is often thought about, you know, the ripples that flow out in the world, um, you know, in all directions through space and time, of the results or the fruits of your action. But we also want to focus how the ripples come back at us, right? That all acts generate consequences that shape the character of the actor. But karma in particular um, is not every action. In in Buddhist thought, um, not all acts generate karma. Karma is restricted to those done with volition, intention, or purpose. Right, You have some intent, some purpose, some human agency. Those are, those are classified as karmic actions. So, with that as the backdrop in Buddhist thought, what becomes of a person is based on the qualities of the actions undertaken. Therefore... Moral decision-making is central to Buddhist practice. If if the actor is being shaped by their actions, um, you'd better choose your actions skillfully. So to become enlightened, one had better choose the actions skillfully. And as we take that back another step to choose the actions, to create that choice, right, we're back to creating the choice. Now mindfulness is linked to morality and linked to, so that links our our meditation practice, our mindfulness to the choice of our actions, to the shaping of our character. So that's kind of the path and the flow. So one quote here is, only by diligently shaping one's mind will acts conducive to negative karma be eliminated. Only by diligently shaping one's mind will acts conducive to negative karma be eliminated. So we have to be very careful and aware of what we're up to, right? And what what actions we're taking. We have to guard our awareness. He spends a, uh, a paragraph or two talking about guarding awareness in the realm of morality. But that has its slippery slopes as well, right? Um, We can go down the slippery slope where we get overly attached to the rules and to the procedures themselves. Being too stiffly prescriptive doesn't allow one to develop More skillful forms of moral awareness. Um, Too stiffly prescriptive can undermine compassion and a liberating connection with others. If you're just too focused on the rules and who broke what, that's not the way either. I like to this just reading this. This was coming up the other night for me when I was reading this. Um, I reminded of a story of, of just an interaction with Flint at the Zendo. My my boys, my boys are now twenty and seventeen, and at the time, I don't remember, but they had to be let's call it like ten and seven or so younger boys, <clears throat> and. Um, I don't remember why we were there, but they were there in Appamata. Maybe they came to pick me up. They were there at the end or for something. And most of the people had cleared out. And Flint and I were in the Zendo, which is, you know, uh, is treated as a sacred space, right? No shoes, no talking. Um, we stand a certain way. We walk a certain way. We bow a certain way. You know, so i had spent you know, years kind of cultivating that practice of being that way in the Zento. And right now, here in the moment, right, here my boys come in, right, or or they're standing right at the the hallway, and Flint's there, and they were gymnasts at the time. And uh, Flint got all excited, he's like, oh, the gymnasts are here. He's like, show me a handstand. And he took, you know, his his arms, and he kind of like pushed the cushions aside, and he brought them in the room, and they all started doing handstands, and um, it just stood out to me as being not attached to any one particular way, not attached to the rules, but just a really free way of enjoying what was happening, enjoying the children that were there. So, I don't know, something about just reading this just reminded me of that. So, we have to be careful, you know, a rigid attachment to thinking if we just follow the rules in each moment, that's going to be it. It's a great place to start, but eventually, we're going to have to let go of that if we're going to wade into the gray areas and into the depth of moral awareness. We have to be aware of our tendency to ju- to be judgmental of others. Um, especially, he talks about the the humans' amazing ability to be judgmental of others while inattentive of one's own limitations. Right? <laughs> it's amazing how we can do that. And to counteract that, you know, monks and their training they were asked to focus on their own moral development. They were were asked not to judge the other monks, not to try and keep them in line, right? Not to be the monk police, right? But to focus on their own personal development, on their own moral development. that's a good lesson for all of us. Another another, uh, ditch to avoid or thing to be careful of is that uh, in Buddhism, we recognize that morality can only blossom under certain conditions, right? This is, this is kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs right, in, in uh, basic psychology. Mm-mm. Morality can only blossom under certain conditions. We can't tell a starving mother that it's immoral to steal food for her starving children. That's not helpful. We have to realize that um, morality uh, is a gray area and conditional. Bodhisattvas are always aware of the background condition. They focus on people's basic needs first before they focus on verbal teachings. So the bodhisattva perspective is that um, this is done for the betterment and enlightenment of all beings. That's the bodhisattva path, the bodhisattva view. We're not doing work in morality, the perfection of morality, for our own enlightenment. We are taking the, the position that this is done for the enlightenment of all beings. That it's a communal practice, not individual practice. It's a communal practice. So I'll read a little section here from page
6: 69.
0: When we act with kindness, We do something incremental to our character. We shape ourselves slightly further into a person who understands how to act with kindness, is inclined to do so, and does so with increasing ease. This this goes back to the idea at the beginning, right? That the actions shape the actor. The actions shape the actor more so than the world they're trying to act upon. When we act with kindness, we do something incremental to our character. We shape ourselves slightly further into a person who understands how to act with kindness, is inclined to do so, and does so with increasing ease. We etch the way of behaving just a little more firmly into our character, into who we are, This is true no matter whether the act is positive or negative in character. Acts of kindness may or may not give rise to external goods such as rewards of money or prestige, but they do give rise to a transformation in character that makes us kind and concerned about the well being of others. So this is communal, not individual. To seek the enlightenment of others, is to enlighten yourself and seeking your own enlightenment will help bring about the enlightenment of others. To seek the enlightenment of others, is to enlighten yourself and seeking your own enlightenment will help bring about the enlightenment of others. Of course, we start with our self-concern, right? This is just our natural tendency. It's where we begin. And that's natural. And one of the the ways that we, in our Buddhist traditions, that we learn to to work with that or counteract that is, the mental act of dedicating or turning over our merit, right? There's an echo at Appa right? Um, At the end of our sitting, we dedicate our merit to, right? So this this goes back thousands of years, the dedication of merit, that whatever we may have gained from our sitting, whatever we have gained from our personal practice, we turn our aspiration and our focus towards dedicating it out to the world for the benefit of those around us. Every good act is given away in Buddhism. Every good act is given away. It's freely given. And this also helps to shift our focus for morality from restraints and more towards positive practices inspired by love and compassion. lastly, I think the last thing I'll cover from this chapter is, is the distinction between contingent versus internal outcomes that Dale Wright goes into. Um, a contingent outcome is uh, something that's contingent on the act that you may receive a gift, right? If you, if you perform some act of kindness, maybe you receive some actual you know, monetary donation, or maybe you receive praise or admiration for an act. So that's, that's a contingent outcome, which may, may or may not happen. But there's also internal outcomes, right? That when we act with kindness, we do something incremental to our character, right? That was the passage I was reading before, that we shape ourselves slightly further into a person who understands how to act with kindness. So there's contingent outcomes and there's internal outcomes. And there's a there's a passage here where he's talking about kind of the difference between um, contingent and internal outcomes. <clears throat> and in some Buddhist circles, they talk about um, kind of a, uh, a much much longer view and kind of a rebirth view that states that you know uh, one way they put it as a result of stealing one will lack material wealth that's that view because there's this idea that um, over time and over rebirth you kind of get the opposite but to to counter that right our, our view i think that's this internal view that's maybe easier for us to grasp Instead of saying, you know, as a result of stealing, that someone will lack material wealth, if we're focused on the internal view instead of the external, we might say, as a result of stealing, one will have deeply troubled relationships to other people, as well as a distorted relation to material goods. As a result of stealing, one will find compassion and intimacy more difficult, be further estranged from the society in which one lives, feel isolated and unable to trust others, making one even more likely to commit other unhealthy acts and leading ultimately to an unfulfilled and diminished existence. These results of the act of stealing have a direct direct relation to the act. Every act pushes us further in some direction of character formation. So we're back to the actions shaping the actor. Pushes us, so each act pushes us further in some direction of character formation or another. And further, instantiates us in some particular relationship to the world. So that's a bit of Dale Wright in The Perfection of Morality. Any questions or comments? Yes, Rosemary.
2: Did you want to assign more of this book? Because um, I didn't see any um, more of this on the um, schedule. I mean, it's kind of well, hard because it's long, but... Yeah, it's long, and, and
0: I think it's really... Let's see here. Let me, let me share for a moment. So the the schedule that's out on the web should have the... I think initially the first version I put up didn't have the Dale Wright stuff in there, but this one should have it in there. So
2: okay. Maybe post- I don't have the most recent.
0: Yeah, but if, if you go to the oh I see. You go to the precepts program page under the class schedule. Okay.
2: There, I
0: see. I'll put it in the chat window. So.
2: I see it now. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's mm. kind of a dense book, um, and I, I view it a, as kind of extra credit reading a bit, so don't feel too badly if you, if you can't get through it or go to it. The, the Rosetto books are main text, but it is good okay. to hear this more uh, deep kind of wading into uh, the precepts that Wright takes as well.
2: Yeah, so we have chapter three for next time.
0: Chapter three for next time, yes, which is the perfection of tolerance. So next time we will, um, we'll take up the next Bridgetto, risetto chapter, which is taking what's only freely given, and then we're going to have what I think is our last little bit of uh, outside kind of non-Buddhist supplemental information. We're gonna talk about the right use of power, which is something else that we like to, uh, to study at Alpemaia is helpful. And then hopefully Robin Bradford will be joining us and giving us her thoughts on some of that as well. So, thank you so much for joining. Any parting questions or comments? Anything you want to like to say before we wrap up? Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. We're, believe it or not, we're almost halfway through the year. <laughs> and you survived this long. So I have a prediction that you will survive the whole thing. No guarantees.